This morning we are continuing with our summer sermon series on the prophets, and today we look at the oracles of the prophet Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, as I discovered the South Africans say, and I suppose the British say that as well, but either way it's a mouthful. Uh, Before we read from Habakkuk, let me summarize for you the historical context that forms the backdrop of this book. It's the mid-7th century B.C., and the Assyrian Empire has been the dominant force in the region going on a century now. The Assyrians were terribly brutal. They had conquered Israel to the north, and Jerusalem, where Habakkuk most likely prophesied, had been under the Assyrian shadow as well. And so Habakkuk complains to God about the violence and the destruction that the Assyrians practice. And he asks how God can tolerate such evil and wrongdoing. He asks why God isn't listening to his cries for help. God responds to Habakkuk's complaint, saying that judgment is indeed coming on the Assyrians, but in unexpected form. God points to the Chaldeans, which is another name for the Babylonians. And God says that the Chaldeans will bring disaster, calamity, upon the Assyrians. The only problem is, the Chaldeans are just as bad, if not worse, as the Assyrians. King Nebuchadnezzar would indeed conquer Assyria a couple decades after Habakkuk prophesied, but he would also conquer Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and plunge the nation of Judah into the chaos of the exile. So as you'll see, this, these circumstances for this conversation between God and the prophet form quite the backdrop for our text today. So I invite you now to follow along as we read select verses from the three chapters in the book of Habakkuk. The reading is printed in your bulletin on page 9. Since it's conversational, I've tried to draw your attention to who is speaking when. And Pastor Sunel will also help read the words of God while I read the words of the prophet to capture the conversational back and forth in this text. So I invite you now once again to listen for God's word. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack, and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, judgment comes forth perverted. Look at the nations and see. Be astonished. Be astounded, for a work is being done in your days that you would not believe if you were told. For I am rousing the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Dread and fearsome are they. Their justice and dignity proceed from themselves. Are you not from of old? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, you shall not die. 
O Lord, you have marked them for judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for punishment. Your eyes are too pure to behold evil, and you cannot look on wrongdoing. Why do you look on the treacherous and are silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than they? You have made people like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what God will say to me and what God will answer concerning my complaint. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous live by their faith. Moreover, wealth is treacherous. The arrogant do not endure. They open their throats wide as Sheol. Like death, they never have enough. They gather all nations for themselves and collect all peoples as their own. O Lord, I have heard of your renown, and I stand in awe, O Lord, of your work. In our own time, revive it. In our own time, make it known. In wrath, may you remember mercy. I hear and I tremble within. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones and my steps tremble beneath me. I wait quietly for the day of calamity to come upon the people who attack us. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food, Though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why does wrongdoing go unpunished? That's a question we're all forced to wonder about all the time, right? If we're paying any attention. Why do people, why do nations get away with stuff? Sometimes it looks almost easy to sneak around responsibility. The powerful seem to have an endless supply of smoke screens that keep them untethered to the law or to the truth. How easy it's been for North Korea to sneak around UN sanctions and develop its horrifying nuclear program. How easy it's been for Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil to obliterate the rainforest and silence conservationists and the press. How easy it continues to be for countless autocracies around the world 
to persist with human rights abuses, which are met with little more than feeble rebukes from other self-interested nations. In our own society, we do what we can to keep wrongdoing under control, but despite our best efforts, sometimes the wicked still prosper. We've got over two million prisoners in this country, but crime still claims lives and destabilizes communities. We demand accountability and representation in political, economic, and social life, and yet old systems of power persist with an iron grip. We have a constitution and laws, but neither seem to compel the human heart to do what is right if an opportunity to evade punishment and get away with something presents itself. And so when our own society's efforts at containing evil fail, we often turn to God and demand an answer. Why do the wicked prosper, we ask the Almighty. It's the heart of Habakkuk's complaint. The prophet has watched Assyria run amok for decades and wonders when God will finally say, enough is enough. And quite remarkably, God answers Habakkuk and enters into a dialogue. It's almost a legal dispute with the prophet. But while Habakkuk must have hoped that his discussion with God might yield some explanation, as we've heard, the prophet is left without any easy answers. God says that judgment is indeed coming on the Assyrians, just as Habakkuk demands but it will hardly be a triumph of the righteous. The Chaldeans will execute vengeance on the Assyrians, but the Chaldeans will conjure the question of why evil prospers all over again. This scenario would be like if we entered into a dispute with God over why the Taliban has prospered in Afghanistan, and God's answer were to be, well, ISIS is rousing in the east and will soon take the Taliban out. We'd all love to see the end of the Taliban, right? But if ISIS replaces them, our thirst for justice would hardly be quenched, right? So God's answer is hard to understand. It's unsatisfying. Perhaps God is suggesting that the wicked bring about an end upon themselves. The Assyrians will indeed bring about their own end. Their arrogance will be their downfall, God says. And it's true that in some ways, evil does keep itself in check by imploding, by self-sabotage. Terrorist groups like the Taliban and ISIS often turn to fighting each other rather than uniting as one. And thank goodness they do. It's true that in a sense, evil swallows itself up. But what's troubling for Habakkuk is that God's hand is involved in raising up the Chaldeans. God isn't just standing at a distance waiting for the wicked to self-destruct. Instead, God seems to be pitting two evil nations against each other in order to bring about redemption. Such a solution to injustice is hard to understand. 
And Habakkuk doesn't seem satisfied with the notion that two wrongs will make a right. So Habakkuk decides that what he's going to do is simply wait and see how it all plays out. Habakkuk says, I'm going to stand at my watch post and wait to see what God will do. Habakkuk has said his prayer, he's made his case, and now he's going to stand and be on the lookout to see what God will do, to observe the shape of God's redemption. And then God responds again, this time with a somewhat more assuring but still challenging response. God says, if justice seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. The arrogant do not endure. God assures Habakkuk that ultimately righteousness will prevail, but at an appointed time. And meanwhile, the righteous will have to live by faith. And so Habakkuk's enduring legacy is that to be righteous is to live by faith even in an uncertain and dangerous world. And faith involves not only waiting, but expectant waiting. Habakkuk demonstrates his faith through his willingness to stand on a rampart and keep watch for God's response. He demonstrates his faith through his willingness to expect and even demand that God take action in the world right in the midst of terrible violence and destruction. And this kind of expectation, though it is defiant, is surely a sign of faith. And it all makes me wonder if we share Habakkuk's urgency and expectation when we pray. I'm sure we pray for the same things as Habakkuk, right? We pray for justice to prevail for peace to reign, for evil to be thwarted. We share Habakkuk's longings and desires, but do we share the same resolve in our prayers? How boldly do we pray? And after we pray, how much time do we spend watching for an answer? Maybe you have that friend who not only tells you that they're going to pray for you, but who then follows up with a call or a text or a visit to see how you're doing, to see whether their prayer has been answered. That's a Habakkuk sort of friend. And what a blessing those friends are, right? Because their follow-up shows that they have indeed been praying, and not only praying, but they've been standing on their ramparts. They have been expecting God to act. They're watching for God's response. But we know that waiting for God to answer is difficult, right? Because it's not just an answer that we want from God when we pray about evil. We want action from God, right? We want God to break open the heavens and come down. God's forbearance with evil and violence in the world can feel absolutely intolerable. Ever since the Enlightenment, the notion that God intervenes in the world's affairs 
has been increasingly held in suspicion. Many people who accept that God exists still question whether God is an active player within history. The idea that God is more like a clockmaker who designed the world and set it in motion, but then takes a hands-off approach and lets things play out. The idea that God is like a clockmaker is far easier for our modern minds to accept than the idea that God still breaks open the heavens and comes down. But the detached, indifferent, clockmaker God is not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture does act. But from our vantage point, it can seem slow sometimes, right? Even terribly slow. And so the task of faith becomes persevering in prayer, expecting God to act even when day after day goes by and the world seems out of control. Habakkuk describes what this kind of faith is like, and it's not always pleasant. Rottenness enters my bones, he says. My steps tremble beneath me. Habakkuk's prayer is a desperate one. O Lord, in your wrath, may you remember mercy. That's a prayer. Habakkuk speaks compellingly and honestly about the fact that living a life of resolute faith can be a very tough thing sometimes. But then the end of Habakkuk comes... And we see that though it is difficult, it is nevertheless possible to maintain faith in the most testing of times. Habakkuk says, though the fig tree does not blossom, though the produce of the olive fails, though the flock is cut off from the fold, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. God is my strength. The prophet has the kind of stubborn, nevertheless faith that we need for our anxious times. Habakkuk's faith is gritty. It's a faith that waits eagerly for what God will do, even when the present circumstances don't make sense. Now, had Habakkuk lived another 650 years he would have finally seen some answers to his questions. He would have seen God's decisive action within history when the word became flesh and dwelled among us. He would have gazed from his ramparts in Jerusalem across town to the hill of Calvary, where he would have seen the wicked surround the righteous Savior while God remained heart-wrenchingly silent. He would have seen the God who he confessed to be too holy to look on bloodshed, shed his own blood for the wicked, the arrogant, and the proud. He would have seen the God of old, about whom he confessed, you cannot die, die on a cross. How Habakkuk would have trembled then. Even though waiting on God can be difficult, we do wait with the knowledge of all that God has already done for us in Christ. We are on the other side of the cross, 
We have seen the empty tomb. We have heard the promise that he is risen and he will come again. Through Christ and in the power of God's Spirit, we know that God is on the move in our world, even when God seems to tarry. So may Habakkuk's faith inspire us to remain passionately engaged in the world, even when injustice and violence persist. Let us not run and hide, but let us station ourselves on the ramparts. Let us persist in prayer, expect God to act, and consider how God might want to act through us. And when the fig tree produces no fruit, let us fix our eyes on Christ, knowing that he still comes among us in our hurting world. And when he comes again in fullness, all things shall at last be well. Alleluia and thanks be to God. Amen.